Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOT. And this week, we are going over the big UFC 272 card headlined by a grudge match between Jorge Masvidal and Colby Covington. There's a couple other great fights sprinkled out throughout the card. Maybe not a you know a big four like uh, casual fans, but the diehard fans are very much looking forward to every single fight on this card. It's unfortunate that the co-main event was lost on Monday as Rafael Fazayev unfortunately tested positive for COVID and apparently is really feeling it. Uh, so he had to pull out of his fight and the search was on for a replacement for RDA who has been putting in time for multiple training camps that have fallen through at this point in time. And luckily, as of Tuesday afternoon, they finally settled on Hanato Moikano. It's going to be a 160-pound catchweight fight, and uh, it's still going to be a five-rounder. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing how those implications impact a guy like uh, Hanato Moikano, who has a lot going against him with travel, jet lag, weight cutting, all of that. I'm obviously going to cover it in the breakdown that you guys will see later in this uh, podcast, but a lot for him to work against and then have to go up against a veteran like Rafael Dos Anjos. Oof. But I still think it'll be a fun fight. It's a great addition to the card. It saves the co-main event slot and allows RDA to still go out there and compete. But there's other fun fights still to talk about, right? We got Bryce Mitchell against Edson Barboza. A great step up for Bryce Mitchell, who's been absolutely destroying his division over the last couple fights. Uh, not to mention we got Greg Hardy against Sergey Spivak. We got a possible number one contender fight in the women's strawweight division between Marina Rodriguez and Yan Xiaonan a ton of great fights i can't wait to break down all these fights for you guys and for you guys to see which side i'm currently on but rule number one for this podcast is always transparency 101 whether it's winning night whether it's a losing night whether it's break even night we always go over last week's bets just so i can you guys can hold me accountable so uh it was a winning event the second out of the four or six winning uh event total events this year uh hasn't been the greatest year for me thus far but uh this uh event this past weekend hopefully is the spark of a, of a solid run that we can go on over the next couple of events dig ourselves out of this hole and get back into the green for the year so uh, no lock of the night play, but my dog of the night play, which have been absolutely killing the game in uh, 2022. It's just been other spots that have really been shit in the bed for me. But my dog plays have been fire, especially my dog of the night plays. Five and one on my dog of the night plays. Uh, and that includes the win that I had picked up this past weekend with Armin Petrosian, a unit and a half at plus 151. Uh, great line, I thought, especially with the line closing, cl closing closer to plus 135. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I still haven't seen the fight in completion, right? I, I still, uh, my, my internet, unfortunately, um, uh, disconnected right before the fight started. And I was just scrambling all over the place, calling customer service, trying to figure out what was going on. And then luckily it, it zapped back in. And uh, what I came to see was uh, Petrosian fighting off a rear naked choke in that third round uh, against Rodriguez. And... Um, yeah, luckily, to me, for somebody that just tuned in, I have no idea what happened in the first two rounds. I honestly didn't feel that great. It seemed like a fight that Rodriguez was kind of controlling with his grappling, just based on where I uh, kind of uh, tuned in from. But luckily, Petrosian defended the rear naked choke, got back to his feet, and then eventually let it, started letting go with the strikes, which more than likely swayed the judges his, in his way, uh, especially in that third round. Uh, I will still go back and watch that fight because I heard it was a great fight. 
Um, probably should have got fight of the night honors, although Kim versus Cachoeira was a pretty good fight as well. But uh, I need to uh, go back and watch it uh, again, just for tape study purposes and just to see how that fight actually played out. But what matters at the end of the day is the cash is in the pocket and we got plus 2.26 units on that fight. Uh, actually, uh, I did have a 0.25 unit stab on Petrosian to win in round two via KO. Again, I still got to watch it back to see if it was even close to coming to fruition because that line was plus 600 and I thought that was great value considering I expected Petrosian to stop a grapple heavy approach early in this fight and then start to take over in the second round with the striking eventually finding that knockout. But I'm happy to still cash on the money line play on Armin Petrosian. Let's stick with the winners for now. Uh, I had two, or actually I had one parlay uh, and two separate. Uh, one was at plus 110, one was at plus 106, but they were the same legs. Uh, Jonathan Martinez did absolute work in there against Alejandro Perez. Uh, luckily, um, you know, the judges didn't look too deeply into that uh, knockdown at the ending of the first round against Perez. And luckily for Martinez, showed great resiliency coming back and still going out there and winning the second two rounds second and third round especially that third round considering that Perez really started to put the foot on the gas and Martinez was countering perfectly eventually setting up that decision victory for himself next up we had Ignacio Bajamundes who was more than likely going to be my lock of the night play that night but I don't know what it was I don't know if it was that wrong power that I was a little bit skeptical about especially considering how much Bajamundes actually gets hit but good god he played as close to a perfect fight as he could have eventually finding that submission in the third round and getting Rong Zhu out of there so those cash for plus 2.16 units, or sorry, yeah, 2.16 units. Uh, and then we go to the two L's that we took, actually the one L. Uh, obviously the other L I already spoke about Petrosian round two minus 0.25 units there uh, I had a unit on the over two and a half in Bobby Green against Islam Mahachev uh, at plus 110 uh, really thought we'd see Bobby survive a little bit more on the ground but Mahachev was not going to be denied that night and uh, he really put that work on Bobby Green absolutely got him out of there again I was free rolling going into the main event as well um I slightly regret that spot, especially considering I'm not a big overs guy to begin with. But all in all, we still cash on that event, plus 3.19 units for a 67% return on investment. Uh, very happy with my performance there, but I need to parlay that into further success over the next coming weeks. I've already placed my lock of the night and dog of the night play on the Patreon five bucks a month uh link is in the description below a ton of great content on there for you guys uh best bets and props article early access to the uh, breakdowns you guys are about to see a great discord community and most importantly this weekend pay-per-view parlay for the patrons it's pretty much a, a way for me to give back to you guys where i put out a survey take the four most voted on legs uh in a parlay uh put five percent of my take from patreon onto that parlay if that parlay hits i'll be sending the winnings to a random patreon member so that's a great way for me to give back not to mention prize picks tips and a plethora of other great perks five bucks a month very much a, a ton of bang for your buck there and i've had numerous people tell me that uh i put in the most amount of work uh on patreon especially for at that dollar amount of five bucks a month i go as deep into as many fights as i can for you guys to give you as much insight and information required for you guys to go out there and make educated bets so shout out to everybody that 
followed me from there. Shout out to Alfred as well, who's yelling and saying that I'm more than likely going to be cashing my dog of the night play this weekend. So hopefully that comes through. With that said, the plays are going to be free on Friday, but the lines may have moved since then. Uh, that's what uh, another perk that the Patreon members get uh, by uh, signing up there as well. So once again, link is in the des- description below. And lastly, shout out to Coolbet, great supporters of the show. Um, make sure you guys use the promo code MMALOTN2 and they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. Quick note regarding Coolbet. I know they had some sort of system error a couple of days ago where a couple people got screwed out of some of their winning tickets um i fully and wholeheartedly believe that it was a legitimate error from what i was told uh their live betting odds were not updating and there was a lot of egregious odds out out there that people were taking advantage of so just as a whole they swiped the slate clean some people kind of got left out uh hung out to dry some people you know they you know obviously taking advantage of incorrect odds uh they got their money taken back stakes were returned don't get me wrong but uh yeah cool bet apparently is doing everything in their power to make it right for these people um yeah so if you were one of those people that got affected by the cool bet system maintenance thing i apologize but they have a great reputation and i don't think this one slip up is really going to deter me from continuing uh, continuing to push their brand i love their odds sometimes they're a little bit slow with updating odds uh not live betting but like other odds uh and so you might be able to find solid odds on on mma specifically and then also the fact that you can parlay props i know that's a big uh thing for a lot of people to scratch that degenerate itch of theirs something that i like to do on occasion as well so once again make sure you guys check out coolbet coolbet.com use promo code mmalotn2 that's the number two and then match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks all right I feel like this intro is a lot longer than we're used to seeing, but uh, I'm psyched. I'm ready for this UFC 272 week. A ton of great content coming out. The Coach's Main Event Marathon, if you guys haven't seen episode one, we obviously did that back at UFC 271. Episode two is going to be this week as well. More than likely, if this podcast is out, the Coach's Main Event Marathon is out. So make sure you guys go check that out. out. James Krause, Tyson Chartier, and Cody Donovan are all going to be breaking down the main event, Kobe Covington versus Jorge Masvidal with me. And then obviously we'll be going into the game part of that show where they all give me one pick from the main card that they want to put their $100 on. And then we'll ultimately see at the end of the year who comes out on top with the most profit. uh, Thursday, propping you up is going to be on the All-Star. I think we're going to be doing 3 p.m. Eastern, me and Cody. But uh, keep your eyes peeled on my social media to know exactly when that uh, podcast is going to happen. But it's going to be on the All-Star since it is a pay-per-view week. So make sure you guys go check them out. Subscribe to their channel as well. Friday, Ultimate Wayne Show. Can't say who the guest is as of yet, but it's a goodie, a very... Uh, an OG of the game a solid coach very much looking forward to seeing uh, what he has to say about the upcoming card and he's actually a part of the lock of the night challenge and in second place in the high stakes $500 game right now so he knows exactly what he's doing especially on the gambling side of things so you guys are not going to want to miss that and then lastly Saturday uh, 1 p.m eastern for the fight day live chat where I talk to you guys that's about it. Last, uh, sorry, one more thing. I will be not. I will not be doing an IG live this week. As Friday, my day is going to be completely swamped. Uh, it's a day off for me. I'm going to a comedy show that night. Shout out to Andrew Schultz. I will still be squeaking out that ultimate weigh-in show with my guest. But for the majority of that day, I'm going to be off the grid. So uh, no IG live this week. But we'll be doing it again next week uh, for the Uncle Live and Santos card. All right. 
that's a wrap on the intro. Uh, let's get into the breakdowns, and I'll see you guys on the flip side for the outro. Dustin Jacoby versus Michal Oleg Shejuk. We got minus 195 on Jacoby and plus 165 on the Polish fighter Michal Oleg Shejuk. Now, this is a great fight, right? Two primary strikers. Jacoby a little bit more decorated in terms of his uh, striking background. Michal Oleg Shejuk is just a powerhouse, a hard-nosed striker that likes to move forward, try to break you with pressure, and try to get you out of there after you bro you have broken. Um, but when he starts to fight some sort of resistance, some sort of uh, you know legitimate striking acumen, that's where we kind of see him not push as much as he did, especially in that Shamil Gamzatov fight, right? Gamzatov didn't do a good job in terms of establishing any sort of striking game outside of big power shots that he was pretty much telegraphing from the hip, and uh, Michal was able to get out of the way of those uh, strikes and counter effectively, which ultimately sucked the gas tank out of Shamil within two and a half, three minutes, and then eventually we saw Oleg Shejak land a beautiful uppercut to down him and eventually get that finish as a slight underdog, if I'm not mistaken, in that fight. Before that, though, is the fight that I think is a great indicator of how this potentially will go, and that's the Modestus Bukowskis fight. That's where we see Bukowskis pretty much match Oleg Shejak on, on strikes landed, uh, but it was the small things that he was doing that required Oleg Shejak to respect him and ultimately not be able to pressure him as effectively as he's been able to do to past opponents feints and you know using kicks and you know showing the knee and and moving well and throwing the jab out there and and just really throwing these strikes out there whereas you know it's not just power shots like it was coming from Shamil Gamzatov that's the difference right Dustin Jacoby is a master at those things and I think he's a way better version of what Bukowskis brings to the table not to mention I thought Bukowskis deserved to win that fight so um with Jacoby, great striker, like I said, uses his jab very effectively, uses feints, which I think is going to be very important, because if you guys go back and watch that Bukowski's fight, uh, Oleg Shejak was biting on almost every single feint that he was throwing, and that's a big part of Jacoby's game, not to mention the leg kicks, which will start to slow down Oleg Shejak as the fight goes on, and even flashing the knee like he does a lot, with that 6'3 stature that he's standing at, that knee is very effective, and a lot of fighters have had to respect that in the past from Jacoby, which is why he's able to stick counters behind that or he flashes the knee and throws a one-two down the middle and opponents are just like oh what did I get hit with I thought the knee was coming at my at my face so there's a lot of work that D Dustin Jacoby does in the striking realm that a lot of people don't seem to be giving him respect to and I think if you watch that Bukowski's fight closely enough you'll see that Jacoby will present those same threats but more he has more volume than Bukowskis, right? Bukowskis wasn't doing a good job of throwing the jab out there enough because anytime he did, he got Oleg Shejak moving backwards. But I think he was just scared about the counters coming back his way, whereas Jacoby likes to throw the double jab, likes to feint a lot, likes to throw the kick to stay active. So uh, I think people are overlooking that. There might be some recency bias on the love that I'm seeing from Ihal out there because of his performance against Gamzatov and maybe even the fact that he beat a Russian with an Av as their last name maybe that's why he's getting some love there might be a little bit of buyback on the Jacoby line at that minus 200 I think that we could see it go down to maybe minus 180 but out of fear of getting a worse line I already love the line where it's at I already pulled the trigger at minus 194 I think that's a damn good spot I think he has a field day with Michal who will more than likely be fighting into his game plan which is allowing uh Jacoby to kind of counter and then set up his other strikes with his feints with his jab and with his kicks 
again, I love, love, love Jacoby in this spot. And I really do think that he's going to put on an absolute clinic here against Oleg Shajak. The only issue that I've had in the past against a guy like Oleg Shajak is the optics kind of favor him with him moving forward, right? But I think that it's going to be one of those fights that even with Jacoby being on his back foot, I don't think he's going to be on his back foot as much as Gamzatov was. But I think like maybe 60% of the fight we'll see Oleg Shajak moving forward. Unfortunately, I think we'll see Oleg Shajak be eating a lot of shots for his troubles there. Not to mention, Jacoby is a big, big dude. And Oleg Shajak is not a, you know, could cut down to middleweight if he really wanted to. He's a, you know, a, a legit natural 205er. The guy barely cuts any weight to make the weight class. And I think that's going to bite him in the ass here against a much more decorated striker and a much bigger guy in Dustin Jacoby. Last thing I'll say, Jacoby's chin is amazing in my opinion. I think he's only suffered one knockout loss on his professional MMA record and even in his kickboxing record suffered one clean KO loss. He's lost to TKO via referee stoppage I think back in 2012 but his lone KO clean KO loss in uh, kickboxing came to Alex Pereira and we know what Alex Pereira and what type of power that guy is able to possess. Uh, Michal does hit hard, but I do think that he's going to struggle to land that big shot here against the guy in Jacoby, who's just, in my opinion, technically way better in the striking realm than him. So I'm going Jacoby here. feel quite convicted about it. Uh, he could get a late finish or a decision here. I'll probably take a sprinkle on the 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 round three prop here. Uh, we've seen Michal kind of slow down later in fights, maybe not in the Bukowskis fight, but we saw him slow down against uh, uh Ovin St. Pru, uh, maybe with the retaliation and resistance that he's going to be feeling from Jacoby here, maybe he starts to slow down later in this fight, and then we see Jacoby uh, land a beautiful shot and put him out there as well. So I'll take a sprinkle on the round three, but in terms of a pr official prediction, I'm going to be going with Dustin Jacoby via decision. Devontae Smith versus Ludovic Klein. We got minus 170 on Devontae Smith and plus 150 the return on Ludovic Klein. Now, uh, this is a fun fight. This should be fireworks. I'm very much expecting uh, it to go down with both these guys looking to take each other's heads off. On the Ludovic Klein side, we got a slick southpaw striker with great combinations. Although he's low output at times, he does wait for the perfect opportunity to uncork that beautiful head kick of his, which he's managed to land time and time again against past opponents. On the flip side for Devontae Smith, he's training now, or at least for the last couple fights now, at Factory X, where he's trying to look to harness the power punching style that he has and mix it in properly with the speed that he offers, and he tries to uh, use that to effectively to outstrike his opponent or eventually find that knockout which he's been able to do more often than not both of these guys combined for 33 out of 35 fights that have not gone to a dis, uh, decision and i think that's what we're going to see here as well and i see that line currently well earlier i saw it hanging around minus 170 i'm seeing it around minus 175 still and i think that's a damn good spot in terms of targeting a, a side for this fight for the Devontae smith side he's coming off of that loss last time around to jamie malarkey where he started off pretty good the speed was obviously getting the better of malarkey that night but in that second round malarkey landed a beautiful straight that uh, grazed the eye of Devontae smith causing him to really start to bl blink and panic and that's where jamie malarkey smelled the blood and was able to follow up and get a beautiful finish in his own way 
On the flip side, for Ludovic Klein, he's coming off a two-fight losing streak now. One, obviously, as a heavy favorite against Mike Trezano uh, in a fight where he was pretty much out-finessed. Trezano used his range pretty well and used his volume to really uh, cause Klein some issues that night and was able to come away with the decision victory. On the flip side, uh, on his next loss against Nate Landwehr, another spot where he was a big favorite, uh, he just can't match the the pace and the output of Nate Landwehr and Landwehr was able to stifle him plenty of times especially in that second round and then eventually in that third round manages manages to get that dart stroke I I believe it was Jars or an Anaconda. Either way, was able to find that choke on Klein and be able to get him out of there in round three. An outcome not a lot of people expected to see that night. But now both of these guys are looking to bounce back, and I think they're going to do so by producing some fireworks here. I think we'll see Klein let loose on his combinations a little bit more, and I think eventually he'll be able to catch Devontae Smith with something. I think it's actually going to take place and and go down in the second round. Uh, that's where I think that we'll see Klein really start to catch up in terms of the speed advantage that Devontae Smith is going to have as Devontae starts to slow down. Hopefully, Klein can put on a little bit of a pace on him. Uh, not not like a, like we know he's a low output fighter, but I mean even just pressuring him and kind of giving him something to think about on counters or even just his own head kick that he likes to flash more often than not. From there, I think he'll be able to find that knockout blow in the second round. But rather than taking the plus 150 on Ludovic Klein, I'd rather be okay on both sides and take that fight doesn't go to decision, which currently hangs around minus 175, like I stated earlier. Uh, the line is a little bit weird to me, right? I'm seeing a lot of people take the Klein side, and I don't blame them. I think there's solid value on the Klein side here. The only disadvantage he really has in this fight is the speed advantage of Devontae Smith. But we've seen Devontae put out uh, and finished uh, numerous times. And if I'm not mistaken, he has three losses on his record, all three via finish. And on the other side, with uh, Ludovic Klein, he has four losses, three of them coming via finish. So I think that we'll see one of these guys get finished. I ultimately think it's going to be Devontae Smith. So in terms of an official prediction, we're going to go with Ludovic Klein, and I'm going to take him to win this fight via second round KO. Tagir Ulenbekov versus Tim Elliott. We got minus 255 on Ulenbekov and plus 215 uh, the return on the veteran Tim Elliott. So a uh, very interesting fight here between two guys that like to implement their grappling. And I think that we'll see plenty of fun grappling exchanges between both of these guys here. Uh, for the Ulenbekov side, I did back him in his UFC debut in uh, a good chunk of my parlays because I think he'd be—I thought he'd be able to go out there and really work Bruno Silva to the mat and just grind him out over 15 minutes. Boy, was I wrong. That was a very close fight, and I honestly did not feel good once that uh, score, uh, once the fight hit the scorecards, thinking that Bruno Silva, you know, had a damn good argument to actually win that fight. It was difficult for Ulenbekov to assert his top position as we saw Silva defend pretty well with the wrestling, with the get-ups, and even with his jiu-jitsu. In the next fight for Ulenbekov, we saw him go out there against another high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in Alan Nascimento, and he lost one of those rounds pretty much with Nascimento on his back. We saw Nascimento throw up a, a bunch of uh, submissions, try to go for many of reversals, and even landed plenty of shots in the striking realm. Uh, off of his back which was uh, hilarious to see but Ulenbekov as the fight started to go on we saw him really establish that top control land some good enough shots stay active enough off the top that the referee didn't really stand them up too often and then whenever they weren't um, 
sweeps or, or transitions or even uh, scrambles. We saw Ulenbekov do a really good job in terms of not settling on his back and eventually getting that top position back once again. He showed great submission defense as well, which should give us some confidence here, especially with uh, the way that Tim Elliott fights off of his back at times. Tim Elliott, though, is a sneaky fighter. Sometimes he's really good, you know, on, on days that he's really on, it's very difficult to, to, to defeat a guy like him. Like even his last fight against Mateus Nicolau, very close fight, could have gotten his way. You know, very, very close fight. So um, even when he fought Askar Askarov, um, I, I know most of the scorecards were pretty much in Askarov's favor, but it seemed like optically Tim Elliott was doing a damn good job. He was marching him down. He was showboating a little bit too much in that third round and not throwing enough offense. But we saw him land some beautiful hip tosses, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's able to redirect the momentum of Ulan Bekov here and land some takedowns of his own. But... I still do think that we see great scrambling from Ulan Bekov, and more often than not, he ends up on top of his opponents, and I think that's what we're going to see in this spot as well. Ulan Bekov's striking is not that bad either. Crisp one-twos down the middle. He uses his range very well, but both of these guys are going to be the same height, so I'm interested to see how the awkward striking style of Tim Elliott plays into the more rudimentary style of Ulan Bekov with his striking. I do think it will be the Ulan Bekov side that gets the better of those exchanges as long as he keeps his volume and output up, but I think eventually, more often than not, this fight will hit the mat, and we will see a, a tremendous amount of grappling exchanges here. Again, he might. Uh, we might see Tim Elliott hit a couple of hip tosses or even land some takedowns of his own, but Ulan Bekov does a really good job, like I said, of not settling on his back, works almost immediately to either get a reversal or get back to his feet and eventually landing a takedown of his own. So I, I do lean with Ulan Bekov here. Um, I, I think... You know, you, you could parlay him, sure. I, I get it. The spot that I'm actually looking at is the over two and a half, which currently sits around minus 150 or minus 170 at certain spots. I think this fight will play out similar to the Nascimento fight or even the Nikolau fight for Tim Elliott, where we see just a ton of grappling exchanges. And I think that's going to ultimately burn a ton of uh, minutes off the clock. And before we know it, this fight's going to be going to a judge's decision. I do lean the Yolen Bekov side, like I said. I don't know if it's just my post-traumatic bet disorder. Even though I've cashed on him in the past, he makes these fights very, very close. And if uh, in shape, ready to go, Tim Elliott shows up, I want to be surprised if he pull up, pulls off the upset. So I wouldn't put all my eggs in that Ulan Bekov ba basket, but I still do think he ends up winning this fight pretty, uh, you know, even if it's by, a, by a, a small margin, I still do think he'll get the better of most of the exchanges and most of the scrambles. But the, like I said, the, the spot that I'm looking at most is the over two and a half. I think minus 150 is a great line here for both guys, for two guys that are quite durable, especially given how this fight will more than likely play out. So, Official prediction, I'm going to go to Gear Ulenbekov via decision. Umer Nurmagomedov versus Brian Kelleher. We got minus 675 on Nurmagomedov and plus 475 the return on Brian Boom Kelleher. Now, starting off with the Omar Nurmagomedov side, it's going to be the first time he stepped in the cage in over 14 months. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what has kept him outside of the cage, but he's been relatively inactive. Didn't have any fights scheduled, but now here he is finally taking on Brian Kelleher. He was scheduled to take on Jack Shore uh, in a couple weeks. Unfortunately, Jack Shore had to pull out and in steps Umer uh, a couple weeks earlier, and Brian Kelleher is like, take me, I'm down. He's always down to fight, as he has made it pretty clear and obvious over his last couple uh, fights as well. 
Now he goes up against uh, Umer Nawagamedov, who great striking style, great kicking style, does a really good job in terms of maintaining his range and staying on the outside. And then from there, he usually waits for his opportunity to close the distance and get the, the clinch going and then eventually try to drag the fight to the ground where he's pretty dominant from on top as well. Brian Kelleher is a veteran, though. The guy has a ton of power in his hand, hands, hence the uh, boom nickname. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how Umer decides to close the distance and tries to say, stay safe before eventually landing a takedown. And then on the ground, Brian Kelleher is pretty good in terms of staying safe and not uh, getting finished, ground and pounded, submitted or anything like that. And from there, uh, you know, he, he works to get back to his feet. He works to try to throw up submissions off of his back. Uh, but he does a good job in terms of nullifying the success that his opponents have. Just watch the Ricky Simone fight. Uh, I think that's a clear indicator as to the skill set that Kelleher brings even off of his back. But unfortunately, I think he's just going to be too outmatched in this spot. I think the only way he really wins is if he catches Umer on the entry of a, of a takedown because I think Umer does a really good job, like I said, of playing on the outside, playing in that kicking range and really making it difficult for Brian Kelleher to get a striking game going, which is best used inside the pocket. I'd be surprised if we see many uh, pocket exchanges from Umer as, again, more than likely he'll be using the, his kicks to maintain his distance. And then when he feels as though Kelleher might be overthrowing, overextending on anything, he'll look to engage in the clinch and then eventually take downs and try to take over from there. Uh, again, it's very difficult for me to see a way that Kelleher wins this fight outside of knocking him out. He's a good fighter, don't get me wrong. He will beat the Kevin Crooms of the world like he did last time around on short notice. Taking on a guy that's much bigger than him as well. We saw great work from him there from, again, pocket exchanges and then eventually landing takedowns when he needed it. But I'll be damned if he goes out there and actually lands a takedown here on Umer or at least establishes a dominant position on Umer uh, you know, while being on top of him. I do like Umer here. It's hard to say, you know, throw a, a minus 700 into all of your parlays. Like, I don't think it adds enough uh, value. It doesn't even add enough to your winnings to um, to take that kind of risk, especially if Keller, you know, who has a ton of power, could change things just by letting one big shot. So um, I, I am picking Nurmagomedov. I do think that Kelleher is quite durable. So I do think that we see this go the full 15 minutes. Uh, so if you do want to look to play this fight, maybe taking Nurmagomedov via decision. Uh, that's probably the best price that you'll get on this fight. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like Nurmagomedov uh, and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Maria Agapova versus Marina Moroz. We got minus 200 on Agapova and plus 170 on Marina Moroz. Now, this is grudge match one of two on UFC 272. Uh, obviously, we know all the things that Moroz has kind of been saying about Agapova. Uh, really, you know, trying to ruffle her feathers, making some pretty crazy accusations as well. That obviously caught Agapova's eye, and I believe she called her out right after that Sabina Mazzo win. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this goes down, especially between two former training partners. Uh, they used to be partners, I believe, in uh, at American Top Team. Now we're seeing Agapova at a different gym. I think last time she was at MMA Masters. She might be at a different ATT location now. But uh, yeah, interested to see how this goes down. So Agapova rebounded after that minus 1,400 loss that she took uh, against Shanna Dobson. Uh, you know, pretty much blacklisted her on a lot of people's uh uh, lists and gambling lists but uh, again why are you parlaying a minus 1400 favorite to begin with anyway 
She bounces back as a slight underdog here, actually, against uh, Sabina Mazzo, uh, really putting the pressure on her, even, or sorry, really putting the punches on her, even though Sabina Mazzo was the one pressuring in that fight. We saw Mazzo moving forward pretty much the entirety of that fight, but Agapova was able to get off the more significant strikes, even while being on her back foot. She showed great footwork, she showed great mobility, and from there, she was able to eventually find that big. Uh, I believe it was a right hook that planted Sabina Mazzo on all fours. And then from there, she immediately went for a rear naked choke and got an immediate tap as well from Sabina Mazzo. So big, big performance from Maria Agapova there. But we got to be sure that we don't get a little bit ahead of ourselves and, and eat into that recency bias a little bit too much, thinking that she's going to go out there and do the same thing against Marina Moroz. Moroz is a solid striker in her own right, right? She has crisp shots down the middle. She's a great all-around fighter. Obviously, she blasted onto the scene by landing a, an armbar victory over Joanne Calderwood in Calderwood's home country. Um, or Joanne Wood, I should call her now. And uh, that that's where she really made her name. She she has decent jujitsu. She has good striking. She has good fight IQ as well in terms of like pushing an opponent up against the cage if that's where she needs them. Uh, maybe going for takedowns. I think she'll struggle in terms of getting Aga, Agapova to the ground here. But that clinch control does concern me a little bit as Agapova does seem like somebody that could be controlled up against the cage. Uh, I saw people make this mistake, this mistake a couple weeks ago when they were breaking down the Jessica Rose Clark fight, thinking that if Tracy Cortez had success against Stephanie Egger, that Jessica Rose Clark was going to be able to do the same thing. I think we see the same thing here where people think that if Tracy Cortez had grappling success against Agapova, Marina Moroz will be able to replicate the same thing. I think that's where they're wrong. That, sure, I think she could have grappling success, but I don't think it's going to be as dominant as what Tracy Cortez was able to showcase in that fight. Agapova is pretty crafty on the ground as well. If you guys go back and watch her fight with Nali Young, I think that was for WLF Warrior uh, Wars. Shout out to the tape index. Uh, obviously, you guys can find the link there. Um, you see her flow well from on top and even try to reverse her opponent, staying out of arm bars and absolutely putting the beat down from full guard with some hammer fists and some ground and pound. Uh, that's how she was able to get Nali Young out of there. So I'll be surprised if Moroz has a, a tremendous amount of success actually holding Agapova on the ground if she does manage to get her there in the first place. I do think that we'll see uh, Moroz land some good enough strikes in her own right, especially with that wild, like that that winging style of Agapova strikes. She kind of just is a little bit too wide with her strikes, and then we could see those straight shots come down the middle for Moroz to kind of counter her effectively. I do agree, though, that Agapova should be the favorite. I do think the line is a little bit off, though. Uh, I do think that it should be closer. I think Agapova closer to minus 130, minus 140 is a little bit more correct compared to Moreau's being up at plus 170 right now. But I'm still going to pick Agapova to win. I do think she'll land the better strikes, and I think that's going to be what sways uh, the judges a little bit more if this does go the full 15 minutes. This could be one of those spots where we get another Agapova club and sub situation because she throws with a lot of heat, and one of those strikes probably will land cleanly enough to drop Moroz, but we'll see if Agapova can follow up as effectively as she did when she went up against Sabina Mazzo last time around. Either way, I'm going uh, Maria Agapova. I I'm not going to get too wild in terms of placing her in all these parlays. I do think she wins this fight, but I think it's going to be a little bit more hard fought than people are expecting it to be. So in terms of an official prediction, I'm going to go Maria Agapova, and I think she wins this fight via decision. Kennedy and Zetsuku versus Nikolai Negomerianu. In terms of odds, we got minus 145 on and Zetsuku and plus 
125 the return on Negmerianu. Now, uh, very intriguing fight. I'm seeing polarizing uh, opinions on both sides of this fight. I'm very much see- looking forward to seeing how this goes down. And it feels like it's a bit of an easy fight to break down, right? On the Negamerianu side, I feel as though he's going to go out there and try to impose his wrestling, which I think he'll ultimately be unsuccessful with. We saw him use it against Alexa Kamor, and even when he was not able to get takedowns, he did a good job in terms of holding uh, Alexa Kamor up against the cage and really letting off some uh, dirty boxing, some dirty knees, and was able to kind of come ahead because of that. Obviously, not without some cheating, obviously. Uh, we see we saw Mike Beltran warn him numerous times to uh, not hold the cage. And uh, I think he warned him four or five, maybe even six times, and still was yet to take a point away from him. That was a split decision. So if there was a point taken away, more than likely it would have been a, a draw, a majority draw, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yeah, uh, big question marks about that, especially if he was not able to hold on to the cage because there was uh, prime opportunities where we saw Alexa Kimura get off the cage and was kind of digging the underhook to get out and break out. But we did see Negamariana kind of hold on to the cage and keep him in that position. In the next fight against Ike Villanueva, we saw him go out there and establish his heavy striking style, eventually clipping uh, Ike Villanueva. And then from there, he was able to get him out of there with uh, some strikes again. Now, without a little bit of controversy, considering that the shots that he was landing on the ground for his ground and pound, the majority of them were pretty much landing on the back of the head. So uh, I think Ike, who was visibly upset afterwards, had a good right to be upset that night because, you know, uh, that possibly was his last fight in the UFC. And to get stopped like that was very unfortunate. The shot that dropped him was clean, though, in my opinion. So I'm not disputing that. It's more so the follow-up shots. And I'm wondering if there should have been some sort of penalty, uh, point taken, fight restarted, something like that, that could have helped out the Ike Villanueva side. Now here he's coming in against a guy who's going to be five inches taller and five inches longer than him as well. And I think from there, it's going to be very difficult for Nego Mariano to secure the takedowns and really get anything going from that top position. And then at range, I'm expecting to see Kennedy and Zachuku kind of just touch him up, use his length as best as possible. He's not the greatest at using his distance, but I still think he's dangerous enough to really uh, make Nego Mariano feel it from the outside. Uh, Kennedy and Zetsuku currently boast an 80% takedown defense rate, but a lot of that is being skewed, uh, skewed by two fights in particular. The Paul Craig fight, where Craig went uh, one of 16 on takedown attempts, and then Marquez uh, went two of 12 on takedown attempts. It's not often that you see uh, Kennedy and Zetsuku actually getting controlled. More often than not, you see him uh, digging underhooks, working to get back to his feet, and uh, getting back out onto space where he is able to manage distance pretty well and get his strikes off from that uh, from from that range specifically. The Darko Stosic fight is one that comes to mind in terms of comparing the two, in terms of thinking that, okay, it could play out similarly to that. We saw Stosic land four takedowns in that fight, but he had no success in terms of holding Kennedy and uh, Kennedy down as he was only able to accumulate about two minutes of control time in a 15-minute fight. I'd be surprised if Negomeriano has a massive amount of success in terms of holding Kennedy down, and he could have some success in terms of cage clinching him, maybe if he's holding on to the cage as well. So I'm sure whatever judge or referee is going to be uh, overseeing that fight, hopefully they're primed to that, privy to that, and know that's something to look out for. 
But I still do think that with the big cage, we'll, we'll see Kennedy be able to move well and strike from the outside and get Nego Mariano to really respect him from that range. If Nego Mariano really looks to go out there and try to wrestle very hard and is unsuccessful in doing so, I can see a world where we see him slow down, especially later in this fight, allowing Kennedy and Zechuku to eventually get him out of there. So my official prediction is actually going to be in Zechuku via decision, but I will be keeping my eye out for that third round prop as we've seen Kennedy have solid cardio in the past, solid durability in the past with the exception of the Daoun Jung fight, but I'd be surprised if Nego Mariano lands devastating elbows like what Daoun Jung was able to do that night. But uh, I think we'll see in Zechuku rally back from that uh, loss uh, last time around defend the takedowns defend the clinch dig the underhooks break out back into space and really get back to work with the striking and using his range as effectively as possible so i do like in zetsuku here i'm gonna say via decision but don't be surprised if you see me sprinkle in a little bit of that round three prop Marino Rodriguez versus Yan Xiaonan. We got minus 255 on the Brazilian and plus 205 on the Chinese fighter who now calls Team Alpha Male home or at least has been for the last couple of training camps. Uh, this line stood out to me as soon as I started skimming the odds and really taking a, a look at the next event. And uh, I, I just can't really fathom why the line is as wide as, as it is. Uh, I, the only reason I could think so is the recency bias, right? That usually is a huge driver and indicator of of betting lines and why lines are moving in a certain way. Like for the Marina Rodriguez side, she's coming off of two, two pretty dominant uh, main event performances where she was, you know, the spotlight was on her uh, being in the main event, going all five rounds against Mackenzie Dern and Michelle Watterson and pretty much beating them pretty handily as well. Whereas on the flip side with the Anjou Nan, she was pretty much in a number one contender spot uh, against Carla Esparza and got absolutely dominated on the mat, ultimately getting finished in the second round. So there might be an overreaction to that Carla Esparza fight even though Marina Rodriguez does not fight that way right more often than not she goes out there and just strikes very rarely do you ever see her go for takedowns I think the only time uh there was one fight earlier in her UFC career and then obviously her contender series fight as well but she's a nasty striker pretty good in the clinch as well and I'd be surprised if this fight doesn't take place in the striking round for the majority of 15 minutes or however long this fight will go for uh, I think both women are tremendous strikers with a ton of power behind their shots I think Marina might be a little bit more versatile in terms of throwing uh, elbows and knees and all that especially in the clinch but Yan Zhaonan can strike and she can absolutely devastate you with some some of the power that she's able to generate uh, again Yan Xiaonan I believe she was a slight favorite against Carla Esparza as well and after that performance which you know I cashed on the underdog there in Carla Esparza but that's just a known right like we know that Yan has had issues off of her back in the past um, you know Gadelia did a decent job but was not able to withstand with the cardio and the, the durability herself um, but Carla Esparza is a horrific matchup. She even beat Marina Rodriguez as well, right? Marina made it a little bit more of a fight than what Yan was able to, but uh, I don't think that should be an indicator of how this fight goes down. Right, I think that we've seen Yan go out there and fight other strikers, like decent strikers, right? Karolina Kavakovic and Angelina Hill, or Angel, Angela Hill, uh, who come to mind for me. Whereas on the Marina Rodriguez side, there aren't really any strikers that she's faced at this point, or at least strikers that demand respect, similar to what Yan Zhaonan is going to be demanding here. So yeah, this fight is closer. I do agree that Marina should be the slight favorite in this spot, but this line is way out of whack in my opinion, and I think that's why we're starting to see that money start to come in on Yan Zhaonan. 
I've seen a couple of people, you know, flash uh, plus 250 tickets on yen from a couple of days ago. It absolutely makes sense. Uh, I got in myself at plus 215. This is a coin flip of a fight. Maybe even, again, 55% uh, Marina Rodriguez at best. But I think it's a 50-50 fight. And at these odds, the clear pick has got to be Yan Zhaonan. I am still going to take her to win this fight, uh, even as a prediction, as I do think that her strikes might pro, uh, pose issues for Marina Rodriguez that she hasn't faced in the past yet. Not to mention with her aligning with Team Alpha Male now for the last couple of fights, hopefully she's even thought about maybe taking fights ground to the ground herself. Right? Because both guys or both women, similar to the uh, Deanna Balbita and Gloria DePaula fight from a couple weeks ago, whoever implements the grappling here could find themselves, uh, you know, uh, getting ahead of their opponent and possibly winning on the judges' scorecards because of that little caveat. Obviously, we saw uh, DePaula and Balbita show s- solid takedown defense as to why we saw that fight pretty much play out in the striking realm. I'm interested to see if that's what's going to happen here against uh, Yan and Marina. But uh, I will lean with the Chinese fighter here. I think she uh, reclaims her uh, momentum after that uh, gaffe against Carlos Barza. And I do think we see her go out there and outstrike Marina Rodriguez, eventually winning this fight via decision. Jalen Turner versus Jamie Malarkey. We got minus 155 on Turner and plus 135 the return on Jamie Malarkey. Now, I'm excited for this fight because these are two guys that are more often than not overlooked or at least underrated. More so on the uh, Jamie Malarkey side. But with Jalen Turner, last time around, he came out and uh, pulled off an upset against uh, the hype train Uro Schmedic, who a lot of people were very high on, thinking that he'd be able to go out there and absolutely demolish Jalen Turner. Unfortunately, they were incorrect that night. We saw Jalen Turner put together a solid uh, game plan that night, dragging the fight to the ground when he needed to, and then eventually seeing that Urosh was really starting to drain himself and was really starting to look for a way out. And then he let go with the strikes, really digging to the body in certain situations and eventually finding that rear naked choke to secure that victory that night. Shout out to anybody that was on the submission prop that night because I believe it was closer to the plus 900 range. So uh, Jalen Turner very much crafting into a solid fighter now, especially after having to have one of the toughest UFC debuts ever coming in on shorteners to fight a killer like Vicente Luque. After that, he also did drop a fight to Matt Favola in a fight where Favola was able to ground the fight at, at key moments to eventually uh, get the judges to score the fight in his favor. We saw Frivola use opportune moments and take advantage of those to shoot a double leg, to shoot a single leg, to clinch him up against the cage and drag him to the ground and do some good work from there. Now, if people think that Jamie Malarkey will be able to replicate that type of game from Frivola, I think they are very much underrating the wrestling game of Matt Frivola. We've seen it in uh, other fights before. There's one that's escaping me right now where people are comparing Matt Favola. Oh, sorry. It was the Ganero Valdez fight. Although that played out, you know, pretty chaotic and we eventually got Matt Favola to win that fight via knockout. I think if that fight had gone to the ground, we would have seen his positional and wrestling dominance. And that would ha- would further cement, uh, you know, his win over Jalen Turner as something a lot more difficult than it actually seemed. Jamie Malarkey has a good clinch game, has a good wrestling game don't get me wrong but i think that at this point turner has really shored shored up those spots and i think from there he should be able to open up with the striking or even take advantage with the reversals or submissions off of his back he's very active in those scenarios right and he's really uh, honing in on his killer instinct with which i think is very important for him especially with the growth in his career 
I do like what we saw from him last time around, like I said, against Orosh Medic. But even uh, the fight before that, uh, let me just quickly pull it up. But I believe it was... Um, uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. It was the Brock Weaver fight where he just laid it on him pretty much from the get-go and eventually got that submission victory as well. Uh, the, the fight before that, Joshua Koulibau. So he's riding a three-fight winning streak, which is very, very uh, good for him. Good for his confidence, especially at the young age that he's at. I do think that uh, he'll put in solid work here against Jamie Malarkey. Malarkey might have a little bit of success, but I'm just not sure if he's going to withstand it throughout the majority of this fight. I think at a certain point, we'll see Turner land a beautiful knee up the middle or even just use his striking from the outside to keep Malarkey at bay at that kickboxing range. Um, I like Turner here. Malarkey is very durable, though, so that's something that we cannot overlook. So I do think that we'll see Turner actually uh, struggle in terms of putting Malarkey away. So I do think that we see this go the full 15 minutes. Again, I don't want to count out Malarkey too much because the guy's been looking good, right? I think he deserved to do, uh, win that Ferris-Zium fight. I'm not sure how the judges scored that third round for Zium, but there were key instances where uh, Zium was able to get back to his feet or even pull off a reversal, which may have... Um, really weighed on the judges when they're ultimately scoring that fight specifically that third round but i think that if we see jalen turner in those similar positions he's going to be able to hit those reversals he's going to be able to hit those get-ups and then from there should be able to get back to work with the striking the only way i really see malarkey winning this fight is if he does land that bomb again he could tire out turner with a relentless grappling uh game plan but i think after you know the first couple minutes when he finds it difficult to actually take turner down and even hold hold him down uh it's going to get more and more difficult for him to assert that throughout the fight i'm going to go jalen turner uh and i'm going to take him to win this fight via decision uh stuff and takedowns uh, nullifying the clinch and just getting his game off from the outside with his kickboxing so once again i'm going to go jalen turner via decision Greg Hardy versus Sergey Spivak. We got minus 180 on Spivak and plus 160 the return on Greg Hardy. Now, Spivak stepping in on short notice here for Alexei Olenek, who was forced to pull out of this fight. But I'm happy because this is a much better opportunity for us to fade Greg Hardy. And I'm surprised that we're getting around minus 180-ish for him right now. Now, that minus 180 line is what uh, Bet Online is showing as of right now. And the line just came out less than a couple hours ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see action on either side here. Personally, I think the guy that uh, that is justified in terms of getting more action put on him is going to be the Sergei Spivak side. Honestly, I think he deserves closer to be minus 300 in this spot, right? A lot of people who are looking to back Greg Hardy here are probably going to put too much stock in the fact that Sergey Spivak got knocked out in his UFC debut. I emphasize the UFC debut as I believe that's a you know a solid reasoning as to why he succumbed to that quick knockout loss to Walt Harris uh, and maybe even putting some stock into the Tom Aspinall knockout that he received last time around. But you know, Greg Hardy is no Tom Aspinall. Let's just put it out, put it that way. You know, um, Tom Aspinall, great hand speed, good movement, uh, hellacious power as well. But Greg Hardy, I think, uh, you know, telegraphs it a little bit too much. And he could obviously catch Sergey here. This is heavyweight at the end of the day. But I think that we need to start, you know, seeing greg hardy for what he is and i don't think he's that great of an mma fighter sergey should absolutely mop the floor with him here i think we see a similar fight to sergey spivak versus tai tuivasa right if you guys go remember watching that fight uh sergey was successful in grounding tuivasa and then eventually finding a i believe it was an arm triangle choke in that fight 
I'm expecting an arm triangle choke here as well against Greg Hardy, who once he gets his back on the ground, he will more than likely give up in this fight. Sergey is a big heavyweight, and he's going to be very tough to get up from under, uh, especially when you're going to start huffing and puffing the way that Greg Hardy does. Uh, I believe if Sergey is smart, the best way to play this is just play it as safe as possible in the first five minutes. Let Greg Hardy kind of punch himself out. Or if there's an opportunity to get the takedown off of a beautiful counter, do that as well. But get this fight into the second round. Let Greg Hardy huff and puff a little bit. Drag him to the ground. Break him. And then either submit him or ground and pound him. Similar to the way that uh, Marcin Tybura did. Tybura got him out of there in half guard. He landed a nice uh, elbow at half guard. It forced uh, Greg Hardy to curl up. The guy wanted out. The guy wanted to quit. And that's exactly what happened. Tybura saw it as well. Which is why he started speeding up the amount of punches that he was throwing in during that ground and pound. And he was able to get the finish. I'm expecting the same thing here from Sergei Spivak as well. So uh, I like Spivak. I'll likely have Spivak inside the distance. Um, yeah, that this this is a squash match, If honestly, if I've ever seen one. Spivak should absolutely cruise here. But again, heavyweights, Greg Hardy could potentially land an early shot here. But if he doesn't, he's going to be in for uh, a rough night. Let's put it that way. I'm going to go with Sergei Spivak. Second round submission. Kevin Holland versus Alex Cowboy Oliveira. We got minus 290 on Kevin Holland and plus 230 the return on Cowboy Oliveira. Now, this is going to be the first trip down to 170 pounds for Kevin Holland in the UFC. I believe the last time we saw him at 170 pounds was uh, over four to five years ago when he was in the LFA still and he took on Curtis Millinder and actually ended up losing that fight via decision. But he planned, uh, made a pretty good name for himself at 185 pounds, but was really struggling against a lot of these heavy grappling wrestlers that were able to get him down with relative ease, and he very much struggled in terms of getting back to his feet. Apparently, he's been on this campaign of just working on his takedowns, living in the wrestling room, and really trying to shore up that part of his game. And we didn't really get to see it play out too much in that Chris or Kyle Dawkins fight, uh, as it didn't, uh, you know, really pan out for too long. We saw him stuff a couple takedowns, but I think the one that he ended up giving up was the one that uh, was caused after the the head clash between the two, which ultimately made that fight a no contest. But when Kevin Holland is at his best, his striking is is pristine the guy is very good with managing his range from distance and letting his strikes go um, and you know gets a little bit uh, unorthodox at times which really throws some guys off he's a sniper of a striker though he does very good in terms of just staying at range and just pick, picking off his opponent from distance and I think watching the Joaquin Buckley fight is a great indicator of you know what Kevin Holland looks like when he's at his best here against Cowboy Oliveira, he's going up against a very, very unorthodox and wild man, Cowboy Oliveira, who's going to be on a mission to go out there and try to get a dub here, especially considering the last couple of losses he's given up in his career. I believe the last time around we saw him was against Nico Price, where it came down to one instance in the third round where it looked like he just gave up, and we saw Nico Price take advantage of that position, ending up on top, and eventually securing that third round for himself for that victory. It's difficult seeing Cowboy Oliveira give up time and time again, and it's you know kind of alarming uh and it really doesn't want to uh you know force you to to make a bet on him even if the odds seem intriguing here at plus 230 i'm even seeing plus 270 at certain places like the, the line seems a little bit wide to me but given you know some of his demeanor inside the cage sometimes his cardio just falls off 
it's very difficult to get behind him. This seems like a spot where Kevin Holland should go out there and just absolutely style on him. He might have to deal with some leg kicks, which could cause him some problems in terms of getting uh, some offense off with the striking. And also, he might have to deal with some wrestling here from uh, Alex uh, Oliveira. So I'm interested to see what the weight cut down to 170 pounds looks like for Kevin Holland here, how it possibly affects his own cardio, and if it is easier for him to stuff these takedowns now that he's going up against relatively smaller men compared to what he's going up against at 185 pounds. Remember, that's a 15-pound weight difference, right? That's much different than somebody going from uh, um, from featherweight to lightweight or bantamweight to featherweight. Like, there's 15 pounds in between the higher weight classes here. So I'm interested to see, and I think it will actually be a beneficial spot for Kevin Holland to get better in those parts of his game. I do think, though, if Alex Oliveira goes out there and tries to go for takedowns time and time again, uh, he may secure a couple of them. But I think we'll see Kevin Holland make it very difficult for him to establish that top pressure. And then I think that could potentially gas out Oliveira the longer that this fight goes. So my prediction here is actually uh, it's going to be Kevin Holland inside the distance. But I think it's going to be a little bit later on in this fight, probably second or third round. I'm definitely going to be sprinkling that third round prop here, as I do think it's very live for Kevin Holland, who has shown great cardio, even in 25 minute fights where he's gr being grinded through the mat. Uh, I think he'll be fine here against Cowboy. I'd be surprised if Cowboy catches him in any anything, uh, whether it's a strike, whether it's a submission. Uh, and I think we'll see Kevin Holland stay pretty safe and eventually find that knockout let's call it round three bryce mitchell versus edson barboza we got minus 140 on thug nasty and plus 120 the return on edson barboza i am very excited for this fight as uh it is a very solid step up for one bryce mitchell now bryce has really blasted onto the scene especially after his fight against matt sales where he was able to lock up a beautiful twister submission that night and then followed that up with the performance against charles rosa where he just twisted him up in knots but charles rosa being the ever tough guy to put away uh didn't tap to anything there but we saw bryce absolutely dominate him on the mat pretty much 10 eights all around as well with how much control and damage he was able to uh, uh put out from on top then I believe the next fight for Bryce Mitchell, he goes out there and fights Andre Feely, a decent step up. But it didn't seem like he had respected the striking enough uh, where he was able to actually close the distance and, and get the takedowns with relative ease. Well, maybe not with relative ease. Andre Feely did a good job in terms of stuffing some of the attempts. But ultimately, Bryce Mitchell was able to get him to the ground and really control him there and eventually take home that decision victory. But now he's going up against a guy in Edson Barboza who demands respect with the power that he throws. Good combinations, great leg kicks, which is something I just don't think that Bryce has dealt with up until this point in his career. And that could cause Bryce to kind of sit on the outside a little bit longer than he needs to, allowing Barboza to paint a solid picture and possibly either find a finish in this fight or even win this fight via decision. I do like Barboza as a dog in the spot, right? I, I know he's had uh, moments in the past where he's lost fights due to grappling. I'm just not sure if Bryce can replicate a Kevin Lee type of wrestling game plan or even, you know, Dan Ige really start to land his takedowns the later that this fight went. Uh, and I honestly thought that Barboza deserved to win that fight. Barboza notoriously has had solid uh, takedown defense, uh, but when you're able to chain wrestle and really push him up against the cage and find trips there, that's where you're most successful. Successful. But like we see him doing good against guys like Amir, uh, Makwan Amir Khani, who was a great wrestling game. And yeah, Makwan did land a takedown in one rounds one, two, and three. But the ones in one and two seem to be from Edson being a little bit more 
frugal right like he he was winning that fight pretty handily in the stand-up realm and while staying safe uh you know at distance maintaining that kicking range where he was able to get the strikes off but then when he realized that the clock was starting to run short and the round was almost over he started to let it go a little bit more and ultimately that's where Amir Khani was able to get those takedowns I'd be surprised if we see Edson Barboza, you know, be too frugal with the striking, if he's a little bit too wild, right? He needs to maintain his distance. And it's good that he's fighting in the bigger cage here at UFC 272 at the T-Mobile Arena because he's going to need every inch of that real estate to make sure he stays safe and keeps this fight in the vertical uh, vertical sphere. But uh, I think the later that this go, goes, the more likely Bryce could land those takedowns. Unless uh, Edson has been able to put in massive work on those uh, leg kicks and really start to stifle Bryce Mitchell with his movement and the power that he's able to generate when he's trying to go for takedowns. Uh, but I, I still do think that we'll see Barboza um, stay effective, stay disciplined, and really put the hurting on Edson or Bryce Mitchell from distance. Again, the later this goes, Bryce could start to drag this fight to the ground. Uh, I do trust Edson's uh, submission defense to be able to uh, keep any of those, uh, uh, you know, fancy twisters or whatever the hell Bryce wants to throw at him. I think he'll be able to stay safe and stay out of those. I I do like Barboza here, and I think he's going to be a popular dog as well. Uh, Earlier this week, he was sitting at plus 130. Now he's at plus 120. I could see this closing as a pick uh, once the fight gets closer. But I do like the Barboza side here. I know he's getting older, but I still do think that he has a striking that Bryce hasn't dealt with at this point in time. And I think that's going to force Bryce to, uh, or or that won't allow Bryce to be as successful with closing the range and getting his uh, wrestling going, at least early in this fight. So um, I'm hoping uh, Edson goes out there, paints a perfect picture, uh, at least in those first two rounds, and then stays safe in the third round and then from there he should be able to pick up a decision victory decision victory so i'm gonna go uh edson barboza i think we see a classic performance from him here and i think he wins this fight via decision although i could see a knockout transpire as well if uh bryce gets a little bit too aggressive and eats a beautiful counter from edson because that guy can still throw heat in his punches knees and kicks and I just don't know if Bryce has dealt with anything like that yet. So I'm going to go Edson Barboza. Official prediction is going to be via decision. Rafael Dos Anjos versus Hanato Moicano. We got minus 195 on Dos Anjos and plus 165 the return on the short notice Hanato Moicano who's accepting this fight on four days notice. Obviously, we know that Rafael Fiziev had to pull out of his fight on Monday due to the fact that he tested positive for COVID once he landed in Las Vegas. He flew, obviously, from Thailand, where he was spending the majority of his training camp at Tiger Muay Thai. But unfortunately, when he landed, he got that positive COVID test and was really feeling it, too. It's not like he just tested positive and he's asymptomatic. Apparently, he was very much feeling it, uh, you know, bone shakes, he's saying, very difficult to breathe. So, uh, you know, prayers with Fiziev. Hopefully, he's able to recover fully from that. As we've seen guys in the past, guys like Hamzat Shemaev was, you know, even considering retirement because of how um, it really damaged his body. But luckily for the fans, we still get a decent fight to replace that. It's still a five-rounder as well, which I think is a big, you know, red flag-ish for the Moicano side, considering that, you know, he fought a couple weeks ago. Uh, He dispatched of Alexander Hernandez, but 
How much has he blown up in that amount of time? Apparently, he just flew to Brazil a couple days ago, uh, a 13-hour flight, albeit. Now he has another 13-hour flight on the way back uh, with two layovers as well. And he's trying to do all of this by while cutting weight. I think he has to cut another 20 or 25 pounds. I think this is a 160-pound catch weight. And I think that's going to have some, you know, some... Uh, some sort of pull on this fight. I think that's going to have uh, an effect on this fight. Um, you know, I don't think people really take that type of stuff into consideration much, especially, you know, this type of circumstance where, again, I'm recording this on on Tuesday and apparently he's supposed to be leaving tonight and he won't get to Vegas until about midday or early on Wednesday. So that's a huge red flag for me. Again, who knows how in shape he truly is, how much he was actually training to be prepared and not just prepared, but to prepare to go 25 minutes against the guy who's been preparing to go 25 minutes for the last several months now. If you guys remember, Dosanios was scheduled to fight Fiziev back in November. That felt, uh, fight fell through. Actually, it was the Mahachev fight that he was scheduled to fight back in November. That fell through. Uh, and yeah, this fight has just been continuously been pushed back. And now Hanato Moikano is going to try to save the fight. Now, Moikano is still a dangerous fighter, right? And rounds one and two, I think he has an opportunity opportunity to really stamp his himself in that fight. I think he's going to look to go out there and try to take Dos Anjos' head off early, knowing that he more than likely won't be able to keep a 25-minute pace up if he needs to. I am a little bit concerned though, right? Dos Anjos, uh, he's getting up there in age. He's 37 years old, but it's been a long time since we've actually seen him KO'd and finished. If I'm not mistaken, the last time we saw him KO'd and finished was the um, Eddie Alvarez fight from years ago. I just want to confirm that, um, but... I do think for for uh, for Moicano to win this fight, he's gonna need to find that finish early in this fight because the later that it goes, we know that uh, uh, Rafael dos Anjos is very good in terms of going late in fights, having the cardio and the durability to st sustain it and not go out. Yeah, the last time he got finished was July of 2016, so close to six years ago when Eddie Alvarez was able to snatch the lightweight title from him. But since then, he's been going up against, you know, the, the meanest and toughest guys at 155 and 170 pounds. Just listen to this uh, this group of names or this list of names that he went through after um, fighting Eddie Alvarez. He lost a decision to Tony Ferguson. He beat Tarek Safadin by decision. Uh, he submitted Neil Magny uh, in his second fight at welterweight. He defeated Robbie Lawler over 25 minutes. Uh, he lost the interim title uh, or sorry, it was a vacant interim title, but he lost that to Kobe Compton, followed that up by another loss to Kamar Usman, followed that up by submitting Kevin Lee in round four, followed that up with a unanimous decision loss to Leon Edwards, uh, and then obviously after that loss to Michael Chiesa, who just proved to be too big for him that night, um, and then obviously was able to win that fight against Paul Felder uh, near the ending of 2020 in November. So he's just been fighting killers after killers after killers. And Moicano now, uh, again, coming in on short notice, I think he's going to struggle to go deep here with Dos Anjos. I could see Dos Anjos looking to try to get this into the grappling realm, try to wear on Moicano, and then eventually finish him later on in this fight. I'm considering a round four stab on Dos Anjos, a round five stab on Dos Anjos, but I ultimately do think that he wins this fight. You know what? No. I am going to call a finish for Dos Anjos here. I do think that he gets Moicano out of there. Let's call it round four. Uh, I'm not going to um, 
count out a possible decision victory for him as well there's been times where he just plays a very safe late in fights by just landing takedowns and trying to control his opponent from on top but i'm gonna read into the moicano not ready narrative a little bit more sure it's great that he's taking the fight on short notice it's a win-win situation for him though because i'm sure he's getting paid handsomely to to take this fight but also uh, if he wins this fight, it's a big win over a legitimate name and Rafael Dos Anjos. But I still do think that the veteran in Dos Anjos is going to get the better of Moicano. I think he'll stay safe enough in the first two rounds and then eventually start to take over in round three, eventually finishing him in round four. Um, last thing I'll say about this matchup, I think that this is a pristine uh, live betting opportunity as well for Dos Anjos. If Moicano is going to have success in this fight, I think the majority of it comes early in this fight. So maybe you can double down on Dos Anjos going into round two or even round three if the line is better than it is pre-fight. Uh, sitting at minus 195, I think that's kind of accurate. I'd bet uh, uh, Dos Anjos closer to minus 150 myself, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do actually see some love come out there for Mike and taking him at plus money, especially considering the last performance that he had against Alexander Hernandez. I wouldn't be surprised if the public just has that fresh in their mind and they're like, oh, we're getting this guy at plus 165 now. Let's try to hammer that line and see if we can take advantage of that possible value. But I think Dos Anjos is still going to come out on top. Uh, very tough, gritty veteran that I think is going to be um, too hard for Moicano to get out of there. So I'm going to go Dos Anjos, and I'll call it fourth round TKO. Time for the main event of UFC 272, and it is a grudge match, or we think it's a grudge match, between Jorge Masvidal, who comes in at plus 270, and Kobe Covington, uh, who's coming in at minus 350. Now, apparently, these guys are in a big grudge right now. Uh, obviously, we've seen this stuff going on on social media with these guys, uh, a lot of back and forth. Uh, we know they used to be former trading partners. There's even footage of Jorge Masvidal in the corner of Colby Covington uh, not too long ago when he was uh, helping him uh, try to capture that interim welterweight title uh, after defeating Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, but since then, it seems to be going downhill from there. And Colby Covington has really become that, you know, what he is now. He's really um, accepted that role of being a villain and being a heel. But how this fight will go down, no matter if it's a, a grudge match, no matter if there's beef, no matter if they're finagling us, it should be a fun fight. Right, Kobe Covington, uh, one and two in his last three fights. He obviously dropped that fight to Kamaru Usman. Uh, came back, defeated Tyrone Woodley, and then waited for his opportunity to get that title shot against Kamaru Usman one more time, and he did. Had a lot closer of a fight than the last time around, or it, you know, depending on how you judged and scored those uh, all those ten rounds or nearly ten rounds. They've been neck and neck the entire way, right? Uh, obviously, the big things that have happened in those Kamaru Usman fights was that Usman obviously finished him in the fifth round of their first fight. Uh, he dropped him, I believe, in the second round of their second fight. But after getting dropped, Kobe Covington uh, very much rallied in those rounds three, four, and five as uh, it looked like he had a damn good argument for actually winning that decision. Uh, you look back at the judges' scorecards, there was one judge that gave him round three. There was uh, two other judges that I believe gave him rounds four and five. So yeah, there is an argument that Kobe Covington deserved to win that fight. And if you guys have been following me for a while, you guys know that I believe Kamaru Usman is definitely one of the best fighters, you know, definitely right now, but maybe of all time, given his ability to mix in wrestling, cardio, and now his improving striking game, it's very difficult to beat a guy like that. But somebody that has just those traits as well is Kobe Covington. 
So I believe he's really neck and neck with one of the best fighters in the world right now. And I think it's going to be very difficult for anybody not named Kamar Usman to beat a guy like Kobe Covington. That's where Jorge Masvidal steps in and he wants to try to turn the, the, the world on its axis once again, especially with the way he was able to defeat Ben Askren as a big underdog in that fight and his uh, stardom skyrocketed after that. But since that fight, it hasn't really been the most impressive, right? Uh, since the yeah Ben Askren fight, he's only one and two. He, he beat Nate Diaz in the BMF title, but again, we know he completely outmatched Nate Diaz that night. But then the Kamaru Usman fight, uh, very underwhelming performance from both guys there, but Kamaru still did enough to win that fight. And then in the next time around, we actually see him get knocked out for the first time in his professional MMA career, which was probably a huge... Um, a huge wake-up call for him as well, but that just goes to further prove that Kamaru Usman is definitely one of the best guys out there. Uh, Masvidal has one of the best striking games in the in that division. That's something that we can all agree upon. Great boxing technique, some underrated power at times, but where he lacks in the rest of his game is where Kobe Covington is going to start to eat him up. So Kobe's striking game has definitely improved as well, right? You can see improvements in the uh, Kamaru Usman fight, even though he got dropped in that second round. Watch back rounds three, four, and five. He put together a pretty good uh, run in terms of landing good combinations, sticking and moving as best as possible, and not getting clipped once again like he did in round two. So uh, there's there's the improving striking, there's the movement, there's the cardio, and then there's the wrestling threat as well. And, you know, uh, Masvidal has shown decent takedown defense in the past, even in that first Kamaru Usman fight. Uh, but knowing that the wrestling threat is there and knowing that I can come at any moment will really affect the way that Jorge Masvidal fights, in my opinion. I don't think he'll be able to fully commit on strikes as he'll likely either be uh, threatened by a takedown or even the movement and possible countering game of Kobe Covington as well. The odds may seem wide to a little uh, some people here, but I think they're absolutely correct. You know, I mean, Kobe Covington, like I said, neck and neck with Kamaru Usman as one of the best fighters in the game right now, and his chin seems to be okay, right? Obviously, we uh, the the loss that he took to Kamaru Usman in the first fight that was a war, right? Both of those guys were just going strike for strike, and I'd be surprised if uh, Co Covington willingly engages in the striking as much as he did with uh, Kamaru in that first fight, as will, what he'll be looking to do here against Jorge Masvidal. I do think we'll see uh, extended striking exchanges, but I don't think that we'll see him kind of, you know, try to trade in the pocket too long because Masvidal is definitely the better technical striker in those situations. But I do think, uh, you know, staying on the outside, staying in kicking range where he can stay active with that kick and then go for takedowns when he needs to, I think that's going to be the bread and butter of his game here in terms of making Masvidal uh, just think too much. If he's thinking too much in there, Colby Covington is doing a perfect job. And I think that's exactly what he's going to be able to do in this spot. So uh, I like Covington here. The spot that I'm looking to take advantage of, though, I know Jorge got finished in his last fight. I think that was just Kamaru Usman and his striking skills uh, and power, everything just culminating at the same time. Whereas Colby Covington has never really been known to be a knockout puncher. He's more volume-based, and I'd be surprised if he gets a knockout victory over Masvidal in this spot. So uh, Covington a decision at minus 105 that will more than likely be my play for this card uh, I do like that quite a lot uh, and I think he just outworks Masvidal from minute one to minute 25 Masvidal might be able to take one round or so he might be able to get some good combinations off but the longer that this fight goes the more it will look like a Kobe Covington fight so official prediction we're going to go with Kobe Covington and I think he wins this fight via decision 
And that's a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you haven't already, please hit that like, hit that subscribe, and show your boy a little extra support if you want to on the Patreon, five bucks a month. Link is in the description below. Also, shout out to Coolbet. Use promo code MMALOTN2. That's the number two, and they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. Um, yeah, ton of great content coming out throughout the week. A big note, obviously, on Thursday, pr uh, propping you up with Cody Saftik is going to be on the All-Star. So make sure you guys go over there and show them some love. And obviously tune in live whenever we go live there. Uh, Friday, Ultimate Wayne Show. I believe that's going to kick off at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, no IG live this week. I'm going to be swamped on Friday. Going out with the wife. Got a comedy show to go to. Shout out to Andrew Schultz. Uh, and then Saturday, Fight Day Live Chat, 1 p.m. Eastern. So... Good luck on your best this week, and I'll see you guys throughout the week for the other great content that I got coming for you guys.